Welcome to Climate Tracker Weekly, where we hear stories that matter to young climate journalists around the world. I'm your host, Chris Wright. As per usual, we have an episode here full of interviews, and we'll have our final interview of the year with Maggie Rodriguez of Brazil. She's going to talk about the danger and difficulties that journalists have to go through under the Bolsonaro administration in Brazil. And I think it's a conversation that we all need to listen to, particularly as we uh, hear these incredible deforestation numbers that have come out of the Amazon this year. But first, I'm joined by someone who's become somewhat of a co-host, if not our very most special guest, um, Mai Hong from Vietnam, to debate what I think might be the biggest climate story of the year. Uh, so Mai, how are you feeling? Feeling awesome. I'm gonna right. miss recording these Climate Tracker podcasts. So hopefully you'll continue inviting me on to these. This is our last podcast of the year. And, and I would love to ask you, what do you think was the biggest climate story of the year? Oh, definitely the US elections and how not Trump won. <laughs> Really? The U.S.? Okay, I was definitely going to go for the China 2060 target um, that, that made such big news around the world. Obviously, you know about this, but you really think that Biden's election was an even bigger story? I mean, what happened in China? They just like made an announcement. Well, they, they made an announcement and then they've made some follow-up announcements ever since, yes. Um, and, and it happens to be what I think is the biggest announcement that I've ever heard in my career kind of tracking climate news um but yeah okay it's an announcement i get that all right well if you're willing to kind of defend your points i'd love to hear the argument that says that biden has a bigger kind of climate impact it's a bigger story than china's and i might kind of respond to that with a bit of an argument supporting china how about that yeah sure Let's do that. All right. Ding, ding. Why don't you kick us off? So I'm actually not arguing that the story in the U.S. is the biggest story because I love the U.S. or the U.S. is great. I'm actually taking that line of argument because I think out of these two countries, the U.S. has done a much worse job in terms of how much damage it costs for um, the global climate and how much action is needed from the U.S. Um, in order to clean that mess up. And Biden will hopefully be the person who heads an administration that does that. So you hear a lot about China being the largest emitter of carbon dioxide um, on a year-to-year basis. But actually, we know that carbon dioxide doesn't just vanish once it's emitted, right? There's such a thing as... um, compound carbon dioxide just building up year after year for 100 years. And in terms of historical emissions, counting from the 18th century, the U.S. is definitively the largest historical emitter um, with nearly 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide coming out of this country, um, which is double that of China, only 200, well, only 200 billion tons of carbon dioxide. So in terms of how big of a historical burden the U.S. bears the rest of the world, um, I think, you know, what the U.S. does will tremendously impact um, climate action moving forward, uh, even though in terms of current day emission, it has already peaked. And again, the second reason why I think the U.S. story is very big is because with China, I mean, we 
know that um, whatever the Communist Party of China says, um, it's a very top-down model of government, and they're going to continue doing that. Um, but with the U.S., it really fluctuates a lot what they've committed to and what line of policy they're going to take, um, depending on who gets the presidency. I mean, we could have had another U.S. president that completely denies that climate change is real. Um, you know, he jokingly does things like holding up a ball of snow and says, oh, climate change is not real. Um, we could have had someone who permanently withdrew the U.S. out of the global climate accords and never goes back. Um, and we could have had someone who continues um, investing in uh, coal in the U.S. and you know expecting growth in the fossil fuel industry. Um, but with Biden, it's a completely different path. I mean, we've already seen announcements like $2 trillion investment over the next four years to drive down emissions. Um, things like no carbon energy sector by 2035 and also a uh, completely net zero economy by 2050. And we're seeing those announcements actually being um, realized in terms of who his appointments for certain important jobs in the government are, like John Kerry, um, who's going to be the first ever U.S. global climate envoy, and Gina McCarty, who's going to head the climate change policy team um, domestically, as well as people like Jennifer Granholm for energy and Pete Buttigieg um, for transportation. Um, so I think you know, with the stark contrast between one potential administration over the other in the U.S., um, definitely the fact that Biden won is the biggest news for climate that came out of the world in 2020. All right. Well, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of wonderful to characterize China's announcement as, as, as simply a statement from a, a top-down party. But, you know, let me remind you that if, if the elections in January in Georgia don't go the way of the Democrats, then, you know, all of Biden's kind of wonderful policy announcements and, and statements will simply be that as well. They will simply be statements that will, you know, fail to be realized over the four years of his presidency and, and then potentially the four years of Kamala Harris's presidency after that. Um, it, it is not possible in the US to make these big announcements and just assume that they will happen as it is possible in China. So, you know, as I make a case for why China is clearly the biggest story of the year, let me remind you that, you know, you mentioned that the US has doubled the historical emissions, but we are talking about right now. And right now, China is double the US emissions year on year. They are three times the EU year on year. And both of these kind of high emitting countries and, and continents basically peaked their emissions in the early 2000s. The reason why the US counts their emissions from 2005 is because they basically peaked in about between 2005, 2007. China's emissions are still rising. So even if China historically has a much smaller responsibility than the US, even its emissions per person equivalent right now is about to get close to the EU. And they might soon pass the EU in terms of per person emissions if the EU emissions keep decreasing. But let me remind you that China is the world's manufacturer. They make everything. And a big reason why the US and EU's emissions dropped in the early 2000s is because a lot of that manufacturing shifted to China during the like 80s, 90s, early 2000s, 
Americans and, and Europeans just stopped making stuff and they just kind of bought stuff from Chinese factories. So a lot of China's emissions is actually what I would call European or American emissions that just happen to live in China. It's, it's like kind of, you know, they're expats emissions, if you like. Um, but China also has the world's biggest solar industry. It has the world's biggest wind industry. It has 47% of the world's electric cars. You know, say what you want about Elon Musk and Tesla. China has 50% of the world's electric cars. Their potential influence and impact is so big, is so large that I was actually having dinner the other night with an Australian energy campaigner. And I, I opened up this old book of National Geographic and I saw this, do you remember those crazy religious type structures that you have this big like kind of tower in the middle and then they're surrounded by these circular kind of mirrors and it looks like there's this kind of God worship in a me mechanical form. It was called kind of um, centralized solar power and, and there was molten salt in the main tower and that's how they stored the energy. And about 10 years ago, these were like the thing, like this was like the thing that, you know, energy campaigners that stick up on their walls and like, instead of basketball photos, like that was, that was the thing. Well, well I, I opened up this page and I was like, Hey, where did these things go? Why, why aren't these things kind of everywhere now? And, and she basically explained to me that, you know, they don't have the cost equivalency of, of solar and literally, she said, if China makes it, it'll get cheaper and it'll get popular because China has single handedly dragged down the price of uh, solar and wind energy. We now have a world where solar and wind is compatible even better than coal per kilowatt hour that it produces energy. Now, if China keeps on this path and obviously this 2060 uh, commitment is, is proof that it's planning to keep on this path massively increase its already massive kind of solar and wind energy uh, capacity, then, you know, you can only imagine that these technologies are getting cheaper and more competitive and will have a massive international impact on the global energy kind of market. So I, I kind of, I, I have to say that, you know, China's current emissions and the fact that they are just the world's maker of things means that if they're going to make more solar panels and more wind turbines and more renewable energy innovations that the whole world is going to benefit from this and this kind of policy that came out in september was evidence that that's the case and and i just kind of can't see how anything else competes with that well since you're talking about energy actually one interesting thing is that <laughs> even though we all want solar power to continue powering the economic rise of countries in places like Southeast Asia um, and in Asia in general. Actually, what we're seeing here is that at most, solar energy and renewables only make up around 20% of these countries' total um, energy output. And with um, a shift away from coal in these places, actually, not all of them are saying, okay, we'll like ramp up our renewable energy capacity. A lot of them are saying we will shift from coal to liquefied natural gas, LNG. Um, and Liquefied natural gas, a lot of it comes from the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is on track to becoming the largest global exporter of LNG by the middle of the next century. Um, and since we're talking about China, even China with, you know, the huge solar panel manufacturing and wind manufacturing capacity that it has, um, it 
committed to increasing imports of U.S. energy products, mainly liquefied natural gas and crude oil, to $33.9 billion in 2021. Um, so yes, maybe China is doing all these great things with renewable energy, but the U.S. is still a very big international player in terms of um, providing fossil fuel energy to these growing economies. And unless the U.S. does something to better regulate how it gets um, its LNG, you know, better regulate its fracking industry and ban fracking in places where it shouldn't happen, then I think in the future, you know, the U.S. will actually be responsible for um, more emissions in terms of um, what it ships to the to the other countries um all right well i you know say again you're, you're basically saying that the u.s is bad and it could get even worse um and and which is why know, it needs to get better yeah and that's but the biggest it's need. such a such a like a boring argument to say the u.s is bad and you know it's 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 so bad and if it does anything positive it's an amazing story as opposed to kind of you know what it should be doing you know i, I think the other point why why china is the biggest story this year is because China has an unfathomable global influence. I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is, is something that often gets kind of like passed around at the at the kind of dinner table and people are like, oh, you know, that China thing, you know, the, the they're kind of yeah, doing China some thing. stuff on the side, you know, the, what's that called again? It's like the straps and, and silk and, you know, I don't know, like, no. And then someone's like, oh, the Belt and, oh yeah, the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road Initiative is the largest infrastructure initiative in history like in history like the green new deal or the u.s new deal of the 1920s the manhattan project of rebuilding kind of you know berlin and such like that they they have nothing in comparison to the belt and road initiative it is the largest building project ever um and 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 china's kind of global influence is is so large that we saw almost a week after or two weeks after if i remember correctly that it came out with its 2060 agreement to kind of, you know, effectively go net zero, South Korea and Japan both came out with net zero plans by 2050. Now, anyone in the NGO world, if they were asked to kind of list their top 10 hardest to move countries over the last decade, in terms of places where people have really tried and have very, very little impact, you know, Saudi Arabia would be on the top of the list, but it's been very hard to even try there. So I would argue that it, it would kind of have to get scrapped. But, you know, on top of the list of places where people can try and have tried to lobby governments to change and have had very, very little success, I would put South Korea, Japan and China on top of that list. And there would be a big space before fourth place. Um, maybe Australia would be would be close up there considering how much effort there has been and how little success. But those three countries would be very, very, very high on the list. And all three of them shifted within about two weeks this year. And I would say that it's largely due to the kind of the the massive window that China has just kind of ripped open with its, its 2060 agreement. Um, and between the three of them, that is coal's international funding. So if you are thinking about kind of if coal will have a resurgence in in developing countries across, you know, Africa or across South Asia, you know, it can't. It, it just no one's going to pay for it now because Korea, China and, and Japan were the only countries paying for it. Now, right now, they don't have kind of international coal financing as part of their 2050 plans, but it's going to happen. Like you can see it is now going to happen. So as a result, you know, this year alone, 
you know, Indonesia's coal exports are down by 37%. Australia's coal exports are blocked in China's ports. It's just got a massive global influence that I don't think, you know, even Biden's announcement can match because I just can't see how the global influence of China saying we care about climate and we want our trading partners to care about climate can compare to anything else. Well, but I think, Chris, you're really overestimating the impact um, the China's Belt and Road Initiative has in terms of what climate policies are being instigated in the country's part of that initiative. I mean, you mentioned Japan and South Korea, right? But then um, what about all the countries in Southeast Asia? We don't really see any clear commitments from those countries yet following you know, the lead of China to be net zero by 2060. Um, so I think I'd argue that China's influence really just stops at those um, three East Asian countries. And then you have the other places like Saudi Arabia, you said, you know, it's very hard for grassroots movements to have any impact in Saudi Arabia. But you know who can have an impact in Saudi Arabia? It's the U.S. So what the U.S. does um, in terms of its foreign influence, influence can also have a massive impact. And that's the other thing why Biden's election means so much is because with Trump, the U.S. was intentionally withdrawing the role that it had on the international stage, on climate, as well as on a bunch of other issues. So with the U.S. back in the game, we can potentially see um, an alliance that becomes as strong or even a lot stronger than the hold that China has on these East Asian countries. We could see the U.S. having a stronger impact um, for, due to its involvement in places like Saudi Arabia and places like Brazil and potentially Australia as well. Um, so I'd argue that that's why what the U.S. does is a big um, factor. And again, because you talked about coal, Chris, I think coal was going to become you know, obsolete anyway in the next decade. I mean, you can't um, continue coal growth across all of these countries in Southeast Asia or um, Africa or, these, or India with just Japan and China and South Korea financing it, even if those countries kept on financing coal. It's pretty clear that the growth is not going to be as vibrant if any other country um, doesn't commit to financing coal as well, which has already happened independently of China. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of these countries are now, like I mentioned before, starting to import LNG from the U.S. from places um, like the places that trade with the U.S. Um, who are exporting liquefied natural gas. So, I think in terms of the next 10 years, what the U.S. does in terms of, you know, whether it will um, have any regulations or bans on LNG will have a major impact on the energy emissions of these countries. Well, Maya, you've put up a, an excellent fight. So let's leave it there before we kind of bust out the boxing gloves. Um, I think it's kind of uh, one of those issues to be debated throughout the the kind of Christmas lunches, the drunken dinners and the kind of, you know, early meetings next year of, of kind of NGOs and, and uh, you know, every, every person who reads the newspapers basically over the next couple of weeks. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We now are going to cross to our interview with Maggie Rodriguez, who uh, is talking about what it is like to be a journalist in Brazil and, uh, and does touch on this relationship between Brazil, the United States, and China. Thank you so much. And now over to our interview with Maggie.
Maggie, how are you doing? I'm fine. Even if I'm in Brazil, I'm fine. I'm safe <laughs> in my quarantine here in Sao Paulo. Has that become like a normal response now? Like, I'm fine. It's Brazil, but I'm okay. Surviving, yes. Yeah, it's been a very big couple of years for Brazil and for Brazilians, right? Do you think that 2020 is the most dramatic or most kind of stressful year that you've experienced? Definitely, definitely. I mean, not in a million years. I would have thought that, uh, you know, in 2020, we would be in the middle of a pandemic. You know, it's, it's surreal. It's like science fiction, you know? Imagine that you would have a pandemic in the 21st century, or, you know, uh, and a, a, a completely upside down government, you know, and, and these two things happening at the same time, that would have required a lot of imagination. I didn't have as much, you know, imagination to, to have thought of that. So, yes, it's definitely the, you know, hardest year I've ever you know, I, I have memory of. Well, Maggie, you're one of our kind of climate fellows and, and you're about to wrap up your three-month fellowship. Um, so before I kind of jump into any more politics of Brazil, um, I, I'd love to kind of learn a little bit about you and about your kind of experience as a journalist. So when did it all start for you? When did this kind of journalism journey all begin? Well, I... Um... I went to college. I don't know if you want to go like to the, you know, oh, yes, when I was a kid, I always saw news on TV and blah, 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 you know, this kind of <laughs> stories. But uh, yes, uh, yeah. So when I was a kid, uh, I used to watch uh, Fantástico, which is a Sunday night show, you know, and they have journalism and, and they tell stories. It's like a variety show with journalism mixing it. And there was a, a reporter, uh, her name is Gloria Maria. She's still active. I mean, not, not as much. She's now like a TV presenter because she's older, you know, um, but, and she's black. I mean, she's a woman and she's black. And she was like traveling all throughout, you know, the world. And, and she went to the most incredible places. Like in one day she was in Marrakesh, you know, seeing how the the fruit fair works there, and you know, talking to people. And then the other day, she was like in uh, peace negotiations in Bosnia. You know, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's that's cool. You know, it, it should be cool to be paid to do this kind of cool stuff and and learn. You know, for for a living. So I think it started there. You know. Um, and then I, I went to college um, in Belo Horizonte, my hometown. I studied journalism. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, you know, pretty much uh, this, ab about discovering what is this about and the possibilities you have. You can go to print or TV or radio or, you know, whatnot. Uh, there weren't as many possibilities as that are now. So that gives up a little of my age. <laughs> I'm giving away a little of my age. It's been like 10 years, I'm, uh, you know, since I finished um, college. Um, and yes, and, and then 
I just got to uh, science reporting because it all felt so cool and, and interesting. And, um, and I think it began when I finished journalism college and um, I didn't actually know what to do with life, you know, in a degree because journalism is so competitive and, you know, and I was young and I thought I wasn't as prepared as I would like, you know, and that I couldn't write about the serious stuff that I wanted to write. So I went to uh, study social sciences. Um, and then in this second degree I was uh, doing, I started working in a project called Universidade das Crianças at the, the Federal University of Minas Gerais, where I was at the time. And it's science communication. And it's the cutest, one of the cutest projects I've, I've ever worked with. And I saw that science was something really cool that could actually change lives, you know? And then I was like, yeah, cool. So maybe this is something I want to report on. This is, you know, an area that I'm interested in and maybe I could work with science reporting and science communication. So yeah, and then the rest is history. <laughs> I uh, went to a master's degree in science communication in uh, Campinas University from 2012 to 2015. And I've been working with science since then. I, I want to kind of pick up on, on two things you just said. One of them was that social sciences was a degree that you started because you felt like you couldn't write about social issues. Why not? Because... I wanted to write about politics. I wanted to, uh, you know, write about economy. Even if I liked um, very much arts and culture, and this was one area I was like, uh, uh, you know, seeing as a possible area of coverage, but I, I didn't feel like I had the, the uh, you know, the, the bagaging, as we say in Portuguese, like I, I didn't have the intellectual luggage or the uh, preparation. I, I wasn't prepared enough because if you talk about politics, if you talk about economy, if you talk about society, there are so many things that uh, you as a journalist won't be able to understand just because you didn't study that thing and you, you don't know how things work and what glues people together and how society works. I mean, that was um, uh, what, I, what I used to think. Um, but now a few years uh, on, down the road, I, I noticed it's just, a, you know, it, it was just lack of confidence, actually, because as a journalist in the field, you can learn so much about what glues people together and about how things work and because you're just learning every day. So maybe you don't have to go to a second degree to study sociology and anthropology. I mean, these things are really nice. But if you are attentive enough and... Uh, if you, if you can observe 
things and and keep studying you you don't have to go through you know all the the burden of going through a social sciences college and and stuff like just to be prepared to talk about politics you don't have to be um you know a political scientist to cover politics you don't have to be an anthropologist to you know cover culture so but you know it took time for me to to realize that actually the other thing i wanted to kind of ask is is you mentioned you know obviously one of your early inspirations when you were growing up um was it gloria maria or zilede gloria maria gloria maria okay um so was one of the first if not the first kind of black woman journalist in brazil to kind of reach a uh, you know, she was, I, th I believe, the first TV anchor on a major TV channel in, in Brazil. Um, but you said specifically, you know, her doing the traveling and being a journalist was one thing, but particularly you said being Black. What does that mean for you? Well, in Brazil, we still have a lot of problem with racism and uh, uh, Black people uh, not having the opportunities that they should have or they could have just because of, you know, the, the structure of, of things the way they are. And for me, um, that was especially interesting, not because I am Black. I mean, I am parda which is uh, in, in Portuguese, it's like mixed race, you know? So my mother is black, my father is white. And, and then I, I have a mixture of, of them both. Um, but the thing is, um, I was raised in a, in a low medium class household. So in this sense, I think I had much more in common with my black colleagues and the black folks that I saw like around me because uh, I used to, uh, you know, I was raised um, in the periphery, if, if we can say like in the outskirts of, of Belo Horizonte, like in a, in a kind of poor region. It's better now, but at the time it was like, you know, difficult social situation yeah. in general. Um, and, and then I, I think I, I really um, uh, saw kind of myself in her much more for my social situation at the time than really by like the color. But like, you know, uh, I think I was in the same level, you know, of, of my black colleagues, because we were just all, you know, low, medium class and, and poor. So, yes. So I think this, this is what made the difference, you know, because if she was black, I understood at the time that she might have uh, had a lot of obstacles and, and difficulties to, to get where she was. So if she can do it, maybe I can too, you know. And, and Gloria Maria was obviously you know, making her way through her journalism career, you know, in the 90s, right? You know, when you were growing up. But clearly it seems that race is still at the forefront of, of the kind of the great challenges that Brazil faces. 
Um, and, and obviously this has kind of, uh, you know, exploded again recently. Do you feel like much has changed maybe throughout the course of, of Gloria Maria's career and, and kind of your young life? Um, do you feel like there is now more opportunities, particularly maybe in journalism? Or do you think that it's, it's kind of like you're still looking on to a small minority of, of people with opportunities and, and for the vast majority of, of people who identify as Paja or as Black or as, as kind of Indigenous, it is still a big struggle? Ah, yes. I mean, uh, journalism in Brazil is still very white, very middle class, you know, very the rich kids that go for, you know, a training in a big newspaper because, you know, they, I don't know, they lived abroad or, you know, they speak three or four languages and, you know, this kind of stuff. I mean, it's still a lot. But I mean, maybe uh, there's a difference that uh, might seem very small uh, in the long haul, but it's very big if you look at uh, where we were and where we are now, you know, because one thing is to have 99.9% of journalists, white, rich, middle class, you know, and the other thing is to have 90% against 10%. I mean, it's still, I mean, 90% is still a great majority. It's still huge. But yeah. going from 0.1% to like 10%, it's a huge advancement too, you know? And uh, and I think maybe we, we got to that, you know? Now we see more Black people uh, in open television, for example, um, in the afternoon news in, in Hedge Globe, which is the biggest and the one that matters the most, really, uh, you have uh, Maria Julia Coutinho, for example. She is a black anchor for the major news in the afternoon in the major channel of TV in Brazil. So this is really something, you know. And uh, even in cable uh, TV news, uh, we also have like more black men, black women and writing as well, you know, uh, there is more. I mean, it's much better than it was in the 90s when I was growing up. It's still a minority. I mean, it's still, you know, just, I don't know, five, 10%. It's still a tiny bit of the whole, but it's so much more than it was like 10 or 15, 20 years ago. And, and is that the same for journalists who who look at science reporting or look at environmental reporting or or is that kind of group of journalists maybe i don't know whiter than than the broader kind of cohort yeah i i think uh maybe in science reporting it's still very white um and uh in environmental reporting uh let me think yeah, if you look at the the, the biggest uh, you know media channels in Brazil, it's it's still very white. Um, but uh, there are a few um, uh, alternative media you know uh, coming up, and they have more. And and I mean, of course, it depends on on what they're covering and what's the focus. And I mean. They all have a story, 
Um, but I see more, um, you know, not mainstream, you know, like indie uh, channels trying to approach that more seriously, you know. But yes, maybe, I mean, this is just a perception I have. Maybe someone mm. would, could come with numbers and, and say I'm wrong. But my perception is that uh, environmental and science journalism is still even wider like than, you know, the rest. Well, without trying to kind of dive into make this whole interview about race, and, and, and there are so many other things I want to kind of ask you about, but just kind of... Uh, like one other question on that. I asked you, what does it mean, you know, that Gloria Maria was a black journalist, but obviously our, our understanding, I think of those words and those racial categories, at least in Western audiences are so kind of framed by how America sees blackness and whiteness. And, and I read recently a really interesting perspective from a British writer who was highlighting that, for example, mixed race marriages are far more common in the UK as comparison to the US. So even these two countries that you would imagine are so similar in their kind of race relations um, on the surface, when you kind of dig a little bit underneath, it's a very, very different country. So what does being white mean when you say that um, in reference to kind of whiter or, or kind of blacker newsrooms? What does being white in Brazil mean? And what are you really referring to? Yeah, that's that's an interesting point because uh, you know uh, somebody who's considered to be white here in Brazil goes to the U.S. or goes to the U.K. and they are Latinos and they get like you know they get really pissed off about that because mm. their whole lives they just thought no come on I, I'm I'm white you know I have a German surname I have uh, an Italian surname or you know, I have a Portuguese citizenship, so of mm -hmm. course I'm white, you know? So, um, yeah, the, the notions of whiteness and blackness are, are really different. So, uh, yeah, here in Brazil, I, I would say that uh, you're perceived as white, of course, if you have, uh, you know, lighter colored skin, if you have, uh, you know, straight hair, normally you're going to have like a German surname or Italian surname or, you know, Portuguese descent. And you're going to love to talk about, oh my God, how my grandparents just got from the <laughs> boat coming from, I don't know where, you know? So, so the, this kind of stuff that we who, you know, come from black people don't have even the privilege to, because, I don't know if my, you know, if my great grandmother came from Nigeria or Angola or, you know, Kenya, because when they just got here, they were forced to forget their names and, uh, you know, forget where they were and they had all their documents burnt, you know, so even having the privilege to have a family story and, uh, you know, a document that says where your great grandfather came from, or, you know, from, from, I don't know, Japan or whatever, you know? So, so uh, there is the, these are the, the, the differences, you know? And uh, yeah, if, if you uh, have lighter skin and, and some privileges and, uh, you know, 
you're going to think you're white in Brazil, even if you're a Latino and a cucaracho, you know, and you go to the United States and then they put you like in the, in the same bucket where all the rest right. is, you know. But do you think that frames the way that maybe environmental stories are told in, in Brazil? If, if like you say, there are more people uh, in that field who, who would identify as, as, as being white and, and as you put it, kind of would have a whole different way of seeing themselves and seeing, you know, Brazil and Brazil in comparison to the rest of the world. Does that change how environmental stories are told or maybe what is, you know, written about? You mean locally, internationally? Uh, maybe both, but particularly, I mean, in, in you, you could argue, for example, if someone has a j social justice framework on a coal plant, they might write about affected communities. If they have a mm. business framework, they're going to write about, you know, can investors make money off this or, or kind of, you know, is this a good opportunity for, you know, the energy sector in general? Uh, if you have maybe a, a local politics kind of perspective, you might write about the local politicians who approved it or, or didn't approve it or tried to regulate it. Um, you know, the perspective that you come from is, is going to shape the stories that you tell and, and how you tell those stories. And, and I just wonder, you know, in the U.S. there's a lot of discussion right now around identity and how that identity shapes the stories that get told. And I just wonder in, in kind of a microcosm of that debate, do you think that the identity of the journalists in Brazil who are writing about environmental stories shapes the type of stories they tell or how they tell them? Somehow, yes, um, because it's impossible not to get affected, you know, by your own background, your own story, or maybe what your boss thinks about that. Because, I mean, if you are a journalist working for, you know, a media channel, you have to, you know, not please your boss, but I mean, you don't want to get him or her like pissed off, you know, you, you don't want to, uh, you know. You don't want to go against what your bosses uh, think. So maybe that would be the, the biggest problem, you know, because uh, me as a freelancer, I don't have that much of a problem because I work for myself and I choose the stories I want to talk about and I can choose, you know, uh, what's the angle and negotiate that with the editor. So it, it's a, a different story, but uh, what I see from my colleagues working um, in newsrooms, sometimes they want to, uh, you know, uh, have a perspective A or B because, I mean, they can be white, they can be, uh, you know, uh, medium class, they can be uh, privileged or whatever, but they're still not the ruling class, you know? so. A lot of my colleagues, they really have the sense of, of, of class um, and uh, where they are. I mean, they're, they're not their, uh, the owner of the newspaper, you know, they're they not, uh, I don't know, even the editors. So they have this notion, you know, uh, about stuff. So I think um, that... Uh, maybe the perception of reality of 
you know, these colleagues that I talk to who are working in the newsrooms, they are more, they are closer um, to, to the reality in environmental terms, of course, because if we go to, you know, other, uh, other areas, maybe it's different, but like in environmental terms, because this is something that uh, affects us all and we are kind of all in the same boat and they yeah. have noticed that. Um, so yeah, so I think maybe they, they have more their feet on the ground, you know? Um, and, and there's this movement of uh, really trying to um, get the, the people to tell their own stories of where they are, like the, the indigenous peoples. I mean, they, they have um, Vijunas Aldeias, for example, is, is a, an initiative. Um, I won't remember now um, where in the Amazon they are, but like they're indigenous people doing film, you know? Okay. So they are telling the stories from the Amazon in their perspective in film. Um, and also, uh, there, there are some, there are some, um, uh, local media like Amazonia Real, for example, and they are telling the stories of the Amazon from the perspective of people who live in the Amazon. And this, I think it's, it's really interesting, you know, because it creates space for grassroots uh, journalism to, to flourish. But I think uh, that uh, when I read um, news uh, in a big newspaper about the Amazon and stuff, I think my colleagues are trying to do the best they can, you know, from the perspective they have and from the place they are, because we have been discussing a lot of you know, these race issues that we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation and, you know, feminism, and this is all over the place. So I think uh, journalists tend to be more careful in Brazil when they are talking about these different perspectives because it's not cool to, to step on anyone's shoes and people are starting to notice that. So this is a cool thing, you know. So kind of on this topic, slightly off it, but what do the words Glenn Greenwald mean to you? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, he, I mean, he's a Pulitzer, you know, he's a Pulitzer winning you know, guy. So he is uh, a great journalist and, uh, I mean, he came to Brazil, he founded The Intercept, which gave us many interesting stories, like the Vaza Jato, for example, you might have heard about, you know, the, the, on the Sergio Moro judge, mm. you know, trying to... Kind of <laughs> telling yes, the prosecutors what they should say so that he can make a conviction. So, you know, it was... Uh, exactly. There's been some great... I, I watched, I think... Uh, a Netflix story called Democracy or something like that. And obviously the yes. Innocent Brazil has been doing some great reporting on, on that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an incredible story. Um, but, but obviously as 
you know, someone who is a, a white journalist who, who has kind of come to Brazil and, and, you know, identifies as a gay man, has, a, has an incredible partner um, who is, you know, politically active in, in, in kind of in public and, and has, on the surface, it seems, created a great opportunity for investigative reporting. Is there another side to that story? Yeah, you know, the thing I was like kind of uh, ambivalent when you first asked this, because these last things that we have seen on Glenn Greenwald and the Democratic Party and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that was a little off, I think. But I mean, I, I understand, you know, he's a journalist and he's doing his job. Um, but um, I think The Intercept really was a game changer not because Glenn Greenwald was reporting on Brazil from the perspective of a white, you know, a, a Western American British guy. He actually uh, gave a lot of space uh, to local journalists to cover, you know, the good stories. So for example, uh, one of the journalists in there, Nayara Felizardo, uh, I mean, we are colleagues and, you know, sometimes we, we talk, we have some, you know, uh, common WhatsApp groups and stuff. And uh, she is one of the, well, coolest people there, you know, and she is a woman, I mean, she's a black woman from the Northeast in Brazil, which is the poorest region in the country. And she's telling great stories, you know, about judges, uh, you know, uh, doing things that they shouldn't and doing, you know, data journalism and investigative journalists, like holding powerful people to account. And it's not about Glenn Greenwald. You know, it's about Nayara Felizardo doing her job. So, uh, you know, I think this kind of, uh, and of course, maybe uh, this perspective of Glenn Greenwald being a gay man and he knows what it feels like to, you know, uh, to, to suffer with prejudice and people talking bullshit about you and, you know. So I think um, maybe he has uh, more conscience than most, you know, who, would, who could be at his same position and who could do the same thing. That's a really interesting perspective. And, and I, I kind of, I have always looked at the Intercept Brazil um, as, as one of the kind of the great models of, of new journalism kind of opportunities and publications. Um, I mean, it's digital first. It, it uses community kind of focused reporters um, who look like their communities that they're reporting on. Um, it, it uses kind of social media very well, as well as kind of, you know, the traditional long form journalism and, and I think that it's kind of created a real interesting model for, for journalism in general, but particularly, you know, the few environmental stories that they've done, I think that they've done a really good job. Um, and, and, you know, their coverage of COVID has gone right into favelas and communities and, and tried to kind of get an understanding what it feels like to be, you know, part of these communities and, and, and whatnot. So I, I really kind of have a very biased perspective of, of what they're doing and, and obviously, there's been a bit of news of late. Um, and, and my other kind of understanding of, of Glenn Greenwald is, you know, I, I remember listening to his interview 
with uh, Dilma Rousseff and just thinking like, how is everyone in Brazil not laughing at his accent right now? I mean, because maybe he is one of the few people who could, you know, ask the questions that he yeah. asked, you know, without being bombarded after, you know, because actually uh, for a long time, um, a perception I had is that uh, the best journalism done about Brazilian politics was actually done by gringo you know, media, <laughs> like the BBC and Deutsche Welle and, you know, Glenn Greenwald, because they can ask questions that uh, people here sometimes can't, because, mm. well, because, <laughs> because a lot of, you know, uh, reasons and, and uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's different. It's different. Interesting. But it doesn't mean that international people, uh, you know, do a better journalism about Brazil than we do. You know, it's, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, it's, it's a local context that and, really... And, uh, no, I'm, I'm with you really there. I, I don't think it's like even a colonial or, or a white thing. I mean, I would say that some of the best reporting that's ever been done on Australia is, is done by foreigners as well. Um, people who come from the U.S. Or, Brit or Britain, for example, who who can come into the country and just say, like, why are you guys like this? You know, or ask politicians, like, why why did you say these things that that is kind of justified within Australian discourse, if you like. And and now we're actually seeing a lot of Asian reporters because, you know, it's it's basically regional who are starting to do very much the same things. They are coming into Australia and asking politicians very direct questions that you kind of hear them ask these questions. You're like, wow, I can't believe someone asked that. You know, it's, it's something that people take for granted here. So I think that's an interesting, you know, uh, dynamic there that, that obviously is way too colored in kind of history, but is, is kind of something that is definitely, there's a weird, you know, element there that that foreigners coming into a country can ask things that that locals sometimes don't do it and i i think that that happens everywhere yeah especially when you talk about politics and this is one point i would really like to make because uh this works well for politics because of the power games that we have here and everything that happens and especially now that we have you know a crazy government which uh, you know, whose fans, be, I don't know, uh, worshippers or, you know, because it's, it's like a sect, it's like a church, you know, and, uh, you know, Bolsonaro's church is, uh, they are going to attack, you know, they're going to attack anybody who asks the hard questions. And we have seen that happening to some very good Brazilian journalists happening mm. here. Mm. And, uh, you know, while this is true for politics, I don't think this is true for environment, for example, and science, because then it's a totally different context. And, and then, of course, and I'm saying that because I am uh, a Brazilian journalist who reports on Brazilian environment to international outlets. Um, but I don't think, um, you know, uh, an American guy just parachuting here would be able to do the same environmental coverage that I can do because I know, you know, what's the context about and, uh, you know, 
climate policy is so complicated and then there is the politics and there's the regional aspects and there are a lot of things that uh, you know some guy some white of course there always has to be a white guy so white guy parachuting here they're not going to get and they're not going to tell you know well that story not as well as I could tell for example you know as being a local because um in this aspect, it's like a Brazilian journalist or I or, you know, a colleague of mine, we are talking to audiences outside. We are talking to someone who doesn't know a bleep, you know, about Brazilian environmental matters or climate or, or science or whatever. Now, the thing about politics is uh, we have this local coverage and a person coming from outside can make our local coverage better, you know? So, so it's yeah. like someone from outside coming here to tell things and, and to improve the coverage that we are already doing, but it's not the same as somebody coming here to, you know, try to explain to Americans how. Yeah. You, know. you kind of make me think about, I, I remember there was this, very popular Twitter thread that I followed one time. And, and I think a journalist from the Washington Post just asked on Twitter, you know, what, what is the best type of questions that you ask um, to other journalists? And then all of these journalists, not just from the US, but uh, from across, like around the world, from what I understood, started throwing in examples of the, some of the best interviewing techniques that they have. And, and one of them that I remember was like, you know, just pausing and allowing people to speak. And, and sometimes you get some of your best responses when you just give them an extra 30 seconds of silence. But one of the most popular ones was when people said asking stupid questions. So asking the basic questions that everyone else thinks that they already know and everyone else takes for granted. Um, but, but sometimes just asking those stupid questions um, can give you some of the most interesting answers. And I think that might be what we're both kind of talking about with foreign political correspondents, that, that they kind of often will ask something that is a normal question in their context, but in a, when they kind of jump into a Brazilian context, you know, they will ask the same question. And, and because it's from a slightly different context, it sounds like a stupid question because everyone, you know, feels like they already know the answer. But sometimes that forces politicians to say things that they're uncomfortable saying. Um, and I think that that's kind of maybe at least a dynamic that I was trying to highlight, maybe similar to what you're, you're highlighting. But I, I definitely agree. Outside of those stupid questions, it's incredibly difficult for, for that value to extend to other types of coverage um, because you can't just come in with your own context. And I think Brazil is probably the most, you know, Maybe I would say I've spent a lot of time in Borneo. It's similar, maybe Madagascar or the Congo. I feel like Brazil is one of the most exotified environments um, in terms of the way people talk about what an environment or a climate story is in Brazil, right? It's the Amazon, it's soy, it's deforestation, it's biofuels, um, and it is like cattle ranches shooting indigenous people. Like that is the whole scope of framings that you can have if you want to write an environmental story about Brazil. There's, there's apparently no other environmental stories in Brazil, uh, maybe gold mines. Um, but uh, do you kind of 
read Western coverage of the Amazon or of Brazil and environmental stories and just sometimes kind of want to puke? Or, or do you read it and sometimes think like, wow, that's amazing coverage. I wish I could write stories like that. Well, I, uh, let's say that I, I choose well, you know, because um, I have so little time that I have to go to a content that I already know that it's really good from the start. So, sure. for example, when I read uh, some Amazon reporting on the New York Times, you cannot say that's a bad, you know, they, they never do bad reporting, actually. I, I mean, it's always something great and they have those great visuals and, you know, data and it's amazing. It's amazing. And of course, because they, they have money and they, you know, uh, put their reporters to collaborate with local reporters and, uh, you know, um, and I think there's also um, some great reporting being done, for example, I mean, but this is more US, it's not so much focused on the Amazon, but like you know, the Atlantic, for example, I really like, you know, the, the environmental and climate coverage that they do there. But um, yeah, let's say that um, the, the coverage that I read, like the Guardian, for example, they, they're just like the New York Times, they always do like great things. So, you know, these, these big players, they actually get a lot, you know, a lot of stuff right. They are really good. So I don't think I have seen a coverage that I wanted to puke, actually. Um, actually oh, that's good I, news. I, yes, yes. I, I see like stuff and, and, you know, I often wonder like, oh my God, I wish I could write, you know, like that guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I personally hope that, you know, as as places like the Atlantic and the New York Times continue to write about the Amazon and about, you know, Bolsonaro for the rest of his, you know, lifelong reign, um, that they, they continue to do so in a way that is, you know, more collaborative, I would say, than, than they have historically done. Um, and, and, you know, more representative, perhaps. Um, because certainly, you know, I, I can... I would say that you're obviously kind of a better judge of it than me. Um, and you obviously don't have a problem with it, but I, I, I can sometimes see where this is a story that someone's written from a desk in London or in New York. And this is, you know, not a story that has been kind of thoroughly looked into. And, and sometimes I feel like the perspectives is, is a little bit off. I, I remember I once was chatting to an indigenous guy um, in, uh, in, a, in a small conference in, in Malaysia and um and he kind of abruptly came up to me and he said do you like orangutans the forest or people um and i was like what do you mean he's like well all white people you guys you pick one you 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 like the orangutans or you like the forest or you like the people and and you don't care about the other two so which one do you care about um and i thought it was like you know it caught me off guard for sure but i thought it was like an interesting um and and a really really apt summary of the way that certain environments are perceived. Um, I, I've, you know, in the Amazon, I don't think you have a species that people obsess about. So, so maybe, you know, you don't have that kind of orangutan phenomenon. But certainly, you know, the forest gets kind of a, a certain type of coverage that you don't see in many other forests around the world. And, and that's obviously because of the size and, and, and whatnot. But it, it's kind of a certain type of obsession, right? Definitely. 
I mean, Brazil has six biomes. <laughs> it's not just the Amazon, you know. Like uh, we have the Cerrado, which is, you know, suffering with the, the agriculture expansion and, and everything. And we have the Caatinga, we have the Atlantic Forest, which is the biome that we have the, the least um, part, like the, the least percentage of it preserved. It's like 12.5, like it's, you know, it's less than 20%. All that, <laughs> all that remained, uh, and we have the the pampas, and uh, people are not talking about it. So yes, I think maybe you know the the Guardian, the New York Times, and the Atlantic, you know, all these guys like they they're really good at doing Amazon because this is what everybody really cares about. Um, but we have so much more. I mean, Brazil is continental, and uh, and I, I really think it's a flaw, you know, of uh, international reporting, not paying attention to what's going on in the rest of Brazil, because they think it's just all about the Amazon. Of course, it's mm. very important. It's vital. But I mean, there are so many other biomes with so many different threats and, and challenges and they are all interlinked with the Amazon because, you know, like the Pantanal, for example, I, I, I guess some people just discovered that we had the Pantanal. Oh, I'm it, guilty. You know? Absolutely guilty. I saw the <laughs> fires and then I read like it's the biggest wetland in the world. And I was like, what? Like, since when? Since, like, what did you guys discover last week? Like, I had, I had no idea at all. Exactly. So this is this is what I'm talking about. And this is why, again, I say that uh, it's important, it's vital that we have local reporters, local journalists, you know, giving their perspective on this kind of stuff, because mm. I know about the Pantanal because I am from here or the Kachinga or, you know, the Cerrado or stuff. And this is really something I try to bring, you know, in my writing, like, you know, oh, okay, so maybe people have never heard about Kachinga, let me write something about this, you know, this bird, which is there. And uh, so, you know, this is, uh, this is the thing about having more diverse voices and giving more opportunity to local journalists who can tell these stories to reach a wider audience because the Amazon is really important, but it's not the only biome that we have in Brazil. Yeah, definitely. And, and one of the interesting framings that Bolsonaro will use and, and maybe kind of presidents of Brazil, you know, pre Lula, they would say that, you know, the Amazon is a, an, is an issue of national sovereignty. And, and maybe Lula and Hussef said it as well. I'm, I'm not as aware, but certainly Bolsonaro has come up with this idea that, you know, the Amazon is ours. It's not yours. Don't tell us what to do with it. Um, and I think that, you know, what do you feel when, when you hear things like that? What do you think he's trying to get at? It's bullshit. I, I'm sorry for my French here, but it's it's bullshit. I, I didn't know the French like ever. <laughs> when did the French come up with all these words that sound super English? Uh, <laughs> oh, it's it's because in Portuguese we have an expression, uh, pardon for my French, you know, 
Me mm, perdoe okay. pelo meu francês, and then you say some, you know, <laughs> curse or, or something. What would you say in Brazil? Like, what is the equivalent in Portuguese? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not gonna say it because Brazilian <laughs> people are going to. to You've got this, to this kind of ridiculous. Yeah, this is no, what everyone no. does, right? It's like swear words in the second and third languages that we know are apparently not as bad as the swear words in our first language. Like when, when yeah, you say it no, in the no, second and third language, like, ah, yeah, it's fine. Okay. Um, so obviously you don't agree. Uh, why? Because, I mean, Bolsonaro was just the other day, you know, um, I, I won't remember anymore. Um, this, this international meeting where he met uh, with, um, oh my God, he met with Al Gore, you know, like, okay. I don't, uh, I won't remember anymore, but like, there was this international, you know, UN meeting, I, I think it was Davos, uh, you know, yeah, I think it was Davos. Maybe at the like start of the year? Last year, or, you know, the, the, or the World Economic Forum, you know, one of these big international powerful people meeting all over the world. So Bolsonaro was there and he uh, met Al Gore there and he was like, oh yes, uh, we want to explore the Amazon with you. <laughs> and then you think, yeah, but weren't you all about, you know, the, the sovereignty of the Amazon and, you know, where is the, I, I don't get it, you know? So I think it's bullshit because I mean, mm. I don't understand how can a person be nationalist and be so acquiescent and you know and and kiss the boots of you know Trump and the United States so much as he does. I mean, I've never okay, I'm not that old, but I've never seen a Brazilian president doing this in the level that he does. So mm. You know, he's all about, oh, yes, let's uh, let's do stuff with uh, the United States and they are the best. Let's sell a part of the Amazon to the United States. Let's explore, you know, let's let the American companies come and mine the Amazon and make money out of our resources. So where is the nationalism in that thought? You know, I, do you I don't get American this companies get off on an, like a free ride like uh, a lot of the pressure obviously goes towards brazil and the brazilian government whenever there's deforestation figures or things like that i've rarely heard like brazilian deforestation figures come out and then american companies getting shamed for it to be honest so do you think there is a hypocrisy there of course and i'm sorry that i get very emotional you know when i talk about this stuff it's 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 just because it's it's surreal. It's um, it's out of my understanding, really. You know, so uh, it's hard to swallow. Well, I, I think to be honest, this is a challenge for you know. I would argue for the NGO and environmental journalism sector internationally. We have you know we've now had twenty five years of these UN conferences almost. Um, and, you know, they started in 1990s, really. Um, actually, you know, the Echo 92 in, in, in Rio, right? So we've had now, what, like 
28 years of, of this type of framing as, as of kind of national governments kind of managing their national environments as a sovereignty issue. And I think, unfortunately, it's very difficult for journalists to look outside of that, or it has been traditionally over the last 20 years, because NGOs have said that it's country's responsibility and have said that countries need to manage forests and, and, and mining and, and emissions. Um, and, and as journalists, we have taken so much of our environmental insights from the framing of, of NGOs. Um, mm -hmm. and, and not without the you know, obvious, that was the whole point from the NGOs to begin with. Um, and, and countries have generally liked it because they've liked this kind of power trip idea that they are in control and, and they are the ones who should get money for kind of managing things. But it, it has limited the amount of imaginative perspectives on environmental reporting where you might look more at the companies involved, where you might look more at, you know, individual um, cities, or you might look at, um, you know, agricultural policies as opposed to kind of national policies or how the World Trade Organization kind of manages these disputes, which are all stories being told. But I think kind of the majority of stories come through this national discourse, this countries manage country like areas and and i think that it has you know in places like the amazon you can really see it where when you do hear a story about a supply chain um recently there was a story about british chicken industry being fed um by cargill soy that is kind of originally coming from um the northeast of brazil and i remember reading that and and thinking like this is a brand new frame this is a brand new like perspective um that cargill should be blamed for things going on in brazil as opposed to bolsonaro um mm -hmm. and i think that kind of it is a real challenge um that we have to try to be conscious of or more conscious of um not necessarily just saying you know country a is doing well and that means country a's government is good or country a is doing bad and that means the government is bad because of often on the flip side i remember speaking to a, a national negotiator one time who was explaining why European countries are so much more progressive on renewables. And he was like, yeah, well, they have, you know, some of those countries have very, very big companies that make a lot of money out of selling renewable technologies to the rest of the world. So it's, it's in their national economic interest to promote renewables. Um, and I think that kind of sometimes we say, you know, Denmark is great um, in terms of their policies because the Danish government is great. And we don't go far enough to look at, okay, why is the Danish government making policies that are kind of supportive of some technologies or some sort of conservation efforts? And that might allow us to then look at places like Brazil and go, why is Brazil doing such kind of ridiculous things in the Amazon or in other biomes? Um, and look at, you know, some of those supply chains and look at some of those business interests um, a little bit more closely or, or a little bit more directly instead of just saying Bolsonaro is crazy and then giving all of these people kind of cover to, to just operate in whatever way they want to. Definitely. It's uh, follow the money. It's that old adage, you know, uh, in journalism. So it's, it's something that we cannot stop doing just because it's an environmental story. So just follow the money. You're, you're right. Which I guess in the case of Brazil, I mean, I don't know how rich Bolsonaro is, but I'm guessing there are some people who are getting a little bit more money than Bolsonaro is right now. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's hard to, to get into that because 
there are lots of corruption scandals and, you know, uh, X, Y, Bolsonaro paying for stuff in, in cash and, you know, sons of Bolsonaro buying apartments to resell for a bigger price and connections with the Rio de Janeiro mafia, you know, so this is, that's very complicated. That's very complicated. <laughs> It's not as easy as, uh, as kind of reporting on what Bolsonaro said or, or what he's tweeting on any particular day, for sure. No, because, you know, this kind of stuff you can prove. I mean, you can, you know, get the, the, the document, like an official document or a study or, you know, whatever data you have and prove. Now, these, you know, little um, under the rug things happening with the Bolsonaros, like they, they try to protect themselves at all costs. And, and I mean, it's, it's the president. So he can, you know, just do whatever, I mean, he, not that he can, but he is doing whatever he wants, like with the investigators and, you know, putting his people there. And it's much harder, you know, to, to, to prove something related to that. That's yeah, I, I think I kind of wrongly insinuated that Bolsonaro's innocent and he's not making money on the side. I'm sure he's making quite a bit of, of kind of, you know, profit for himself and his family. I guess I was just trying to highlight that there are, you know, layers and layers of, of those kind of business interests. And, and some of those interests are outside of Brazil um, and kind of some of those interests are inside and there's a whole combination there. And I, I think, you know, I spent like three minutes trying to justify what I was saying and you just said, follow the money. And I was like, yeah, okay, I could have, that, that's a much better way of saying it in the end. Um, Maggie, what are you writing about right now and, and why should people care about it? I'm writing about um, how climate change influences the um, hospitalizations of Brazilian people, especially in poorer cities, um, because there are some some diseases like diabetes, uh, respiratory diseases and, and viral diseases that can get much worse if you have, uh, you know, a temperature vi variability, <laughs> you know, if the day gets hotter and, you know, the, this um, short term Climate variability, it's not so much about climate change because climate change is more in the long term, but like, you know, short term thermal variability can really, uh, you know, um, uh, make the situation of these people worse when they get to, to hospitals. And, uh, and of course, poorer people always have it worse, especially here in Brazil. So this is what I'm writing about. Mm. And, you know, after these stories are done, um, there's always a next story, right? There's always a, a kind of a future goal. Where would you see yourself in five years time and, and what type of stories do you want to be telling? Well, in five years, let's say that um, we are going to have a different government, so <laughs> which I hope is going to be better than the one that we currently have now. So um, a story that I would really like to write is, uh, you know, Brazil is implementing 
the national, you know, the NDC, like the, the national determined contribution that it uh, pledged in the Paris Agreement and things are going fine and it's working and we are having bioeconomy in the Amazon and in the other biomes. We are respecting the indigenous people's rights and we are paying them the royalties, we're involving them in the decision. So this is, you know, the, the kind of stories that I would really like to be, uh, you know, delving into in five years, maybe, you know? <laughs> let's see. Okay, I on, dream about let it. me rephrase that. I, I, I think it was kind of lovely and beautiful, but it's kind of, um, if that's the story you would like to be writing, what is the story you think you will be writing? <laughs> yeah, none of this. Uh, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, that's, you know, it's, it's hard. And, and I'm going to, to justify that because things in Brazil are happening by the day. So, you know, every day you get a punch from somewhere that you don't see coming when you open the news, when you open Twitter and, and see things happening. So we are in a very unstable environment. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to imagine what's going to happen you know, a week from now. Mm. So it's really hard for me to predict what kind of stories I'm going to write about like in, in five years, because I don't even know if we are going to be in a democracy in five years from now, you know? So things are so unstable that uh, we are just living by the day, you know, the, the day to day and, and seeing what happens. So, um, and I don't want to imagine, you know, I, I don't, I don't really want to do this, this like, uh, you know, Im imagination exercise because things can get so much worse. I mean, this, what's happening is something that I would have never imagined. So, you know, if, if I can imagine something, probably it can get worse. So I don't want to imagine that, you know. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and I, I don't want to kind of drag you down into some sort of like hopeless future. But do you think that Biden's, you know, election, um, or as, as Fox News would like me to call it, you know, the election that has yet to be decided officially, um, but, but basically Biden's election, do you think that that is going to change things for, for Brazil? At first, we thought that the Biden election uh, would somehow, you know, be a, a, a catalyzer for the government to kick Ricardo Salles out of the environmental ministry. But now, uh, you know, Bolsonaro just the other day said that he wants to send Ricardo Salles to the COP26 next year in Glasgow. So, of course, that he, you know, is planning to keep Salis there where he is. So this is one thing that won't happen already from the start with the Biden election. Um, but I do think that uh, 
with the United States going back to the Paris Accord and with stricter policies, uh, you know, uh, stricter environmental policies uh, with Biden, things are going to, to change. Inevitably, inevitably, things are going to change. Not as much as we would like, maybe. Not at the pace we would like them to change, probably. But of course, it's going to have some, some impact. Um, but we, we are still, uh, you know, going to see how that's going to be because our government is really unpredictable. So I don't know, maybe the relationship that Bolsonaro had was really love for Trump. And maybe now in a Biden government, he might say, oh, I don't care about the United States anymore. I don't believe this is going to happen, but I don't know. We have some, you know, it's crazy people in the Planalto. So, you know, you can expect anything. Um, but yeah, the United States um, is a, a very important commercial and, and, you know, political. It's a very important partner for Brazil in many senses. So I think it will have an impact, but we still have to wait for it. You know, I, I don't think we can say this or that is going to happen because we thought, you know, Salis was going to be out and he won't. Who knows? Yeah, it, it sounds a lot like, you know, how people from the US have explained their kind of inability to make any long-term predictions over the last couple of years as well. Um, I, I don't want to kind of paint the two government situations as the same, but certainly that uncertainty sounds rather familiar. Um, so I, I kind of, I can't imagine that that is easy to kind of wake up to. Um, I remember after the Biden election, I think one of the first things I noticed is that I no longer you know, I, I'm not a fan of Twitter, but I no longer felt any urge to go to Twitter and find out if, you know, Trump had bombed someone or was at war with another place. I was just like, no, no, it's fine now. Like, I, I don't I don't care. He doesn't like what he tweets anymore. And, and it was this like incredible relief. I'm not an American. and I'm not living in America, but it was this credible relief that I I felt that I no longer needed to figure out if today was going to be like a horrible day or not. Um, based on, you know, what someone did at 4 a.m. in the morning. Um, and, and I kind of, I really hope that that, that day comes soon for Brazil, um, you know, because it, it sounds like you're experiencing that, but on a whole nother level um, and, and kind of, you know, that, that must affect all of your reporting, all of your kind of family conversations, all of your kind of plans for the future, I imagine. It, it, it must be hard to kind of, just be able to isolate that from from all of your kind of perspectives on life really. it is because um you know bolsonaro is more of a symptom than you know the the real problem itself the problem is that he is there but he is really representative of the parcel that believes in the same things that he does, you know, in people who um, believe that you should 
get a gun <laughs> and the, you know, you, you should protect yourself and protect your family, you know, with a gun. Um, and then uh, I don't know that you should just privatize everything. And, and we still have um, some, some public services that are universal, like the, the healthcare service. I mean, we are every day seeing on Twitter people saying that, uh, you know, in the US, if you get sick, either you die in debt or I don't know what happens because they don't have free health care for all like we have here. And, you know, there are people like insistently saying that, uh, oh, but our health care um, system is so bad, it should be privatized because the invisible hand of the market is going to take care of it all and it won't. So the problem is that, uh, yeah, of course, Bolsonaro is outrageous because of the, you know, stupid things that he says and, you know, he's, he's this folkloric figure, but there's so much more behind, you know, so many people making profit from it so many people feeling represented because of the horrible things that they believe in, you know, like homophobia and, uh, you know, whatever, racism. And I think the most, problem the, the most problematic thing is actually uh, to deal with this, you know, this, this collective feeling this this parcel of, of the population that Bolsonaro really impersonates. And it's one third of the Brazilians. It's a lot of people. And it, it just scares me, you know? So um, I think maybe even after Bolsonaro is gone, it's going to be very hard to get people together again, just like in the United States. I mean, you have Biden, but the problem is not solved. I mean, Trump is out, but Trumpism is still there. So I think that, you know, pretty much the same thing is going to happen here in Brazil. And, and certainly on an environmental perspective, the people making money from uh, Bolsonaro's policies are, are going to be richer and, and more aggressive whenever someone in the future tries to say, you can't make as much money in the future. Um, and, and they're gonna be more united, uh, you know, more powerful um, and gonna have a, a broader fan base effectively that is created by Bolsonaro that will support policies that will help their businesses, um, which are most likely, and in most cases, you know, businesses designed to, you know, destroy ecosystems and, and kind of, you know, replace those ecosystems with, you know, agroforestry or biofuels or, or kind of gold mines or, or things like that. So, I mean, it, it certainly is going to be a challenge um, socially, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're kind of unfortunately aware of, of, of this kind of reality, but, um, but I'm certainly kind of very proud to have people like yourself who are trying to report on it and trying to you know, do something about it in the midst of all of this uncertainty and challenge. And um, Maggie, it's been kind of lovely to talk to you. So thank you so much for sharing your, your thoughts and 
your identity and your perspective. It's, it's been kind of a, a really beautiful conversation. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And that's it for the show. I am Chris Wright, and this is Climate Track Weekly. And this has been our last show of the year. If you have any time to spare, uh, you should probably give people in your family a hug. But if you don't want to do that, uh, listen to our new podcast series called Climate Tracker Asia Specials or Climate Tracker Specials Asia. You can pick. It's the same when you search it. Uh, as we take a deep dive into the media industry across the region. For comments, suggestions, and feedback, you can email us at podcast at climatetracker.org. Uh, we may remove our spam filter next week, but we'll probably keep it up. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a comment. It helps listeners to find us. Subscribe to our newsletters as well and visit our new website. Uh, we have new things on there. It's new. We like new things. Join us again next year, actually, not next time, next year. Uh, where we have another episode of Climate Tracker Weekly um, in the year of 2021, the year where we all hopefully get vaccinated. Or do we? Is that vaccination just a big conspiracy theory to implant video cameras in all of us? We'll debate that and much more next year. So please join us. And um, I hope you have a great Christmas period and a New Year's. And, and please don't think that I subscribe to any of these conspiracy theories. Um, I only subscribe to the truth, and that's why I tell you the truth is that they're trying to manipulate us. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.